So I was saying to Gable, I was looking up here at all of you guys, and there aren't too many places on earth that aren't well represented in our choir. There's a, there may be one or two, but, but it's amazing how God has gone to the ends of the earth to find us all and put this choir together in this place. And a lot of us have been here more than one generation, but our families come from so many parts of the world. It's an amazing thing. So good job. That was, that was a wonderful song, very fun. And it's amazing how Tristan can look sophisticated no matter what he's playing. <laughs> Did you notice that? Yeah. If you couldn't have heard it, you'd have thought he was doing the Mendelssohn number just with the bouncy hand. Yeah, that's amazing. Some people, some people look sophisticated no matter what they do. So you definitely want to get in on this concert later today. This is going to be a grand event. This is the third year we've been privileged to host this three-part series, and this is the last of the series. So. Uh, a lot of hard work by our music people, and appreciate uh, Mark Babianco, who's worked really hard. Not a part of our community here, but in putting all of this together uh, and bringing this concert here. So I hope you'll be here six o'clock. It's going to be a good, a good concert. Okay, just a little warning here <clears throat> before we jump in. Today is heavy. Some Sabbaths you come to church and it's heavy, and I just want to warn you, it's heavy today, but you can handle it, okay? God gave us all brains, and sometimes we actually have to use them at church. So, today's one of those days, but you can handle this. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray for your spirit to come and Enlighten our minds, grant us understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to start in the book of John. Maybe you wouldn't expect us to start here today, but we're going to. John chapter 18, beginning verse, with verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth 
listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. I want to start our consideration today with a single word. Conflict. Dictionary.com defines the word this way, among some other meanings. Conflict is to come into collision or disagreement, to be contradictory, at variance, or in opposition, or to clash. I guess that pretty well describes the current situation uh, with the United States House Republicans right now. Uh, conflict who can who can win a majority in Congress but can't seem to come up with a majority amongst themselves to pick somebody to lead conflict we may try to deny it we may seek to avoid it or we may run from it in a cowardly manner but there is no escape from conflict there will inevitably be conflict in a world where people are free to think for themselves. In truth, there is even conflict in the world where people aren't free to think for themselves. Witness Jang Sun Tiek, the uncle of North Korean dictator Kim Jong Un, a former North Korean strongman who is believed to have been executed uh, late in the year 2013 for alleged counter-revolutionary actions such as, I mean fully as egregious as, this is one of the charges against him, half-heartedly clapping, touching off towering resentment of our service personnel and people when one of King J Kim Jong-un's promotions was announced. So one of the things this guy did wrong was when the dictator promoted himself, he didn't clap excited enough. So if I ask for clapping, I, I really mean it. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you. You'll go far, young man. It's crazy, isn't it? Conflict. In 1997, Jared Diamond, an author with degrees in philosophy, anthropology, history, and physiology, published a fascinating Pulitzer Prize-winning book entitled Guns, Germs, and Steel. The book was a long-form reflection by Diamond on a question he was once asked by a friend from a people group whose society had never developed any of the modern tools, weapons, or sciences. This man's question was, why did your people group develop in the way it did while mine did not? In the book, Diamond discusses an array of reasons why some regions developed swiftly and remarkably and others did not. And while it is a fascinating study, it's not his primary thesis that I want to bring into our consideration today, but rather something else that he brings out late in the book the matter of the impact of conflict on societies. Now stay with me on this. We really are talking about Daniel 7, even if you can't tell so far. Diamond rightly notes how much conflict shapes and forms societies. And further notes that conflict between people or groups of people generally takes one of three forms. 
There is conflict between individuals or groups of individuals who know each other well. That's one type. A second type is conflict between individuals or groups of individuals who don't necessarily know each other, but they have a common mediator authority that they both know and look to. That's the second type. The third type is conflict between individuals or groups who don't know each other and don't have any agreed upon mediator. The first case he talks about is best described as conflict in a small group, such as conflict in a family or a small grouping of families where everyone is acquainted. This would be like a conflict in, say, a house church. In this scenario, conflict is resolved directly as a group, the conflict either being worked out between the individuals themselves or settled within the family group. And if indeed handled properly, this model rarely ever leads to violence or long-term hostility because we're all connected. The second case that Diamond describes tends to occur amongst somewhat larger groups, such as people in a small town, or conflict with someone two streets down in your small subdivision. That's the kind of conflict. Another example would be people in a mid-sized church, or, or a fellow believer from a church nearby. This scenario can be a bit more dangerous than the first condition because conflict in this situation happens between people who don't know each other and this tends to lead to what can become a real problem coalition building perhaps you've seen this done or, or perhaps you've done it yourself you have a conflict with someone that's a stranger and you feel like you're right but instead of addressing it what do you do you go to your friends and you talk to them about how right your view is. And they didn't start out with a conflict with anybody, but after a little while, now you've built up a whole team. And if the other guy's smart, he's doing the same thing. If left unaddressed, this can easily lead to open hostility and to a community breakdown. But usually this can be avoided if someone who can be found who can mediate the crisis, someone that both parties know and that both parties respect. If this is a work environment, think HR handles stuff like this, or, or the elder of a church, or a village chief, or the homeowners association head to deal with your conflict with your neighbor. So those are the first two kinds. But things start getting very tricky when the conflict comes between people who don't know each other and don't know anyone in common. Add to that a dash of cultural difference and you have the makings of a war. In the larger world, such conflict will, in most cases, lead to anarchy and violence unless some sort of coercive external force is brought to bear on both parties to quell the violence and enforce the peace. Therefore, advanced societies must have many entities set up to deal with conflict. Yet ironically, sometimes these entities designed to keep the peace become themselves central to the conflict. In America, we attempt to deal with the inevitable reality of conflict between strangers with police officers, courts, legislatures, presidents, and governors. 
And compared to many countries in the world, America does pretty well at staving off anarchy and keeping peace, though not everyone experiences this the same way. Just talk to some folks in Ferguson or maybe Baltimore. It looks a little different depending on where you stand when you're looking. The problem is, the very means by which a society of people seeks to keep order and resolve conflict can in the end, in the face of the relentless winds of strife, become itself a conflict causer. In other words, raging beasts can be found everywhere. Daniel chapter 7 verse 1 In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. I want today to deepen our reflection on Daniel chapter seven. My intent is not so much to tell you what the symbols in Daniel 7 stand for, but instead to show you why what Daniel 7 describes is in truth inevitable for any kingdom that is or becomes primarily a kingdom of the world. But in order to understand, we have to understand two streams of history the history of the kingdoms of the Mediterranean world and the history of the Christian church. I will reference first the history of the kingdoms of the Mediterranean world by means of a review of what we considered two weeks ago when we first addressed Daniel 7. Daniel had a dream and he saw four beasts. And we got a a graphic of that to remind you that we looked at this last uh, two weeks ago. There was a lion, there was a bear, there was a four-headed leopard, and there was a terrifying beast with ten horns. But in the midst of it all, while Daniel's looking here at these beasts and all the terrible things they're doing, it's as though for a moment his eyes lift and he sees a view of heaven. And in that view, Daniel sees the vision of one like a son of man receiving an eternal kingdom from the Ancient of Days. So on the earth, you have all of these kingdoms changing and and destroying, but up here, you see a different kingdom. After Daniel has related the vision in chapter 7, we find these words, verse 15. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. This little section here is the summary meaning of the whole vision. Each of the beasts represents a different king or better kingdom that would arise and dominate the region. And as we noted two weeks ago, this vision aligns perfectly with the vision of Daniel 2, which we explained is the framing vision for all biblical prophecy. 
Now, we don't have time today for me to detail all of this again, so let me remind you the order of these kingdoms as they arose. There was Babylon, then came the Medes and the Persians, then Greece, and then Rome. Conflict produced these kingdoms. And each had elaborate ways of ordering the empires and quelling rebellion. The Babylonians, the way they dealt with rebellion was after they conquered a region, they took the people from the region and they moved them somewhere else. They put them in exile. That's how Judah ended up in Babylon. The Persians had a very rigid system of law. It was a saying, the law of the Medes and the Persians which cannot be broken. So they had an elaborate system of law and an elaborate bureaucracy of provinces and satrapies and governments and officials. Greece was a little different. It's, it's as though Greece dominated with its culture. The Greek language went everywhere and, and Hellenist culture spread everywhere and they dominated through culture. And then came Rome. Rome built roads and appointed proconsuls and governors and sent legions to crush rebellion through cruel reprisals and through mass crucifixions. Truly, these were violent beasts that crushed and devoured and destroyed. But as we have seen, as we've gone along through here, they were also tools that the Most High God was using to accomplish his purpose in the earth. So as we noted two weeks ago, the Roman Empire would not be conquered by a new empire, but rather would eventually collapse under the pressure of the invasion of the barbarians out of Europe and essentially break down into roughly 10 individual barbarian kingdoms. And it would be during the time of the rule and then the collapse of Rome that the Christian church would be born and then rise from being an obscure Jewish sect to being the religion of the realm. And with that rise came conflict. You can see it already happening even during the time of the apostles. There's a crisis described in Acts chapter 6 a crisis has occurred within the community of believers over the distribution of food to widows. And this crisis leads to the establishment of deacons, the first church officers appointed besides apostles. What were they there to do? The, the deacons were established to deal with a conflict over the service ministry within the church. This is highly significant because this marks the point where the early church moves from that first category that Jared Diamond describes, where it's, it's this house church scenario, everybody knows everybody and we work everything out. Well, the church has gotten too big for that now. And now we have conflict between different groups. And so they establish that intermediary position, that person who can speak to both groups. That's what the deacons did. And the church had moved from stage one to stage two. And this would be just the beginning. This model of personally mediated conflict resolution would begin to seriously break down as more and more Gentiles were baptized into the church, creating not just a crisis of culture, 
but also a crisis of the fact that you've got a whole flood of new folk in the church who have no idea who the apostles even are. And so in the face of these problems, we find Acts chapter 15. The story of the first major church council where all the important leaders of the young church gathered to establish church law regarding the issue of Gentiles in the church and their obligations to observe the Jewish ceremonial laws. But that's not all you see. If you read in the letters of Paul, you'll see that Paul is directing the establishment of, call them whatever you want, elders, overseers, bishops, in each town where the church is established. Why? Well, there's several reasons, but one of the big reasons is because of conflict. House churches are pretty good at solving internal problems internally, like a family. But what happens when conflict breaks out between two house churches? House church A believes we need to think or act this way. House church B disagrees and is willing to fight over it. So who decides if this issue is important enough for a fight? Which church is right? Who picks? And who decides what's to be done with the church that's found to be wrong? There's a lot of discussion along these lines that takes place in the book of Romans about certain groups that are offended by activities of other groups within the church. The overseers, the bishops, this was their job. And everything was good for a while. At least it was good until the bishop of town number one came into conflict with the bishop of town number two. You see where we're going here, right? By the time the church was big enough to have this problem, we had left behind the era of the apostles. So it wasn't possible anymore to run and find one of them and ask for a ruling. They're gone. So now what? Well, in time, certain bishops in certain places, as a result of their wisdom and success and the success of the church in their region, became mediators and arbitrators between the lesser bishops from the smaller communities. If you wanted a comparison, uh, it's kind of like conference presidents and ministerial directors in our Seventh-day Adventist system. In time, Antioch, Alexandria, Ephesus, and Rome became strong centers for church life. And the archbishops, as they came to be called, became very influential in all of the churches, not just in their town, but in their entire region. And conflict was eased for a season until... Any guesses? Until the archbishops themselves and the regions they represented found themselves in conflict. There was a long-standing conflict that developed between the bishops of Antioch and the bishops of Alexandria, and the issues they disagreed on were not inconsequential. There was serious disagreement. The Antiochian fathers, as they came to be called, tended to be the conservatives in the debate, while the Alexandrian fathers tended to be the liberals. Can anyone say Michigan and California in our own day? 
Not much changes, does it? By the time this problem developed, the church was large, both in terms of the number of believers and in the geographic zones in which they lived. And there was now zero chance that all of the important bishops were going to know each other well, and even less than zero that the believers would know each other. And the church was in desperate need of a means to resolve conflict. And so they went back to the model of Acts 15 and began calling councils in hopes that getting all of the important people into the room would lead to resolutions. And to their credit, it did in most cases. One debate addressed by a called council was which writings from the era after Christ should be considered authoritative and which writings were rubbish. And just so you know, you have the fruit of their work in the pew in front of you. We call it the Bible. That was the decision of a council. Other councils developed the doctrine of God as a trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And many other councils labored ad nauseum, attempting to establish the exact divine-slash-human nature of Christ. And it was at this point in history that the kingdoms of the world, the history of the kingdoms of the world, and the history of the church began to intersect somewhat violently. With the breakdown of the Roman Empire, as the barbarian pressure increased, the Roman emperors decided, you know, let's just get out of here and move east. So they moved the capital from Rome to Constantinople. But by so doing, they left behind a powerful civil vacuum, power vacuum, that no barbarian tribe could fill. And into that vacuum of civil power came the church. You see, in time it had become expedient to choose a top archbishop from among the most powerful bishops, someone who could call the councils, and it was decided that the Bishop of Rome would be considered first amongst the bishops, though there was resistance at this point to the dominance of Rome. But the escalating anarchy of the Western Roman Empire put the Bishop of Rome in a unique situation where suddenly he was faced with the need to exert both religious and civil authority over a once great realm that was now in collapse. In general, the barbarian kings of the region, who were slowly but surely abandoning paganism and becoming Christians, were agreeable to some civil authority being vested in a religious leader. After all, that's how it had always been in their pagan cultures. And to have a strong voice of moral religious authority seemed advantageous to settling the endless conflicts in the land. Most of the slowly civilizing barbarian kings agreed to the growth in power and authority of this bishop of Rome. But there were at least three groups that were not pleased to see his authority growing. And ironically, the primary reason was theological. 
These three tribes, the Vandals, the Ostrogoths, and the Visigoths, had become Christian, but they were believers in an anti-Trinitarian form of the faith that denied that Jesus was equal with the Father. A view of the faith attributed to a bishop named Arius, whose views were termed heretical in the year 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea. So now it's the early 530s AD, and Justinian has become the emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire. He's a very strongly religious man who has dreams of putting the empire back together and restoring the orthodoxy of the church. And so he sets out to destroy these barbarian tribes with bad theology. Justinian first defeated the Vandals in North Africa with an army under the command of his general Belisarius and then shifted the fight from there to the Italian peninsula by means of the island of Sicily, which interesting point here is the exact same strategy that the allies in World War II would mimic 1400 years later. In the year 538, Justinian's armies would liberate Rome from barbarian hands for the first time in 60 years and eventually occupy the Ostrogoth capital, capital of Ravenna by the year 540. These actions would serve to elevate the authority of the Bishop of Rome, placing not just spiritual authority under his direction, but also leaving him as the most important ruler in the Italian peninsula who was allied with Justinian. Justinian would finally break the power of the Vandals, the Visigoths, and the Ostrogoths, effectively uprooting these three kings and leaving behind a different kind of power, a blended power, one different from all the others in that it was both religious and political. And that power would rise in place of the three that had fallen. So by the time we get to the late 500s, that little group of believers once known as the Way, you remember one, that, that, that beleaguered Jewish minority who claimed that Jesus had risen from the dead, that little group by the end of the 500s had experienced remarkable change. Not because originally in those days they had planned this, they certainly did not but because conflict finds us and conflict changes us. The church had survived persecution and theological heresies and marauding barbarians and even the breakdown of the Roman Empire. But what exactly was it now that it had survived? What did it become? Which, of course, brings us back to Daniel 7 and to some rather troubling realizations. Verse 19, Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Verse 23, 
he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. Now, if you're tracking with the history I just told you, there really isn't anything complicated about understanding what this vision is talking about. If you buy that Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 align and that the first four medals of the image of Daniel 2 align with the first four beasts of Daniel 7, then one cannot escape some rather clear implications. The head of gold and the lion are Babylon. The chest and arms of silver and the bear are the Medes and the Persians. The belly and thighs of bronze and the four-headed leopard are Greece. The legs of iron and the terrible beast with teeth of iron are Rome. And then remember in Daniel 2, Daniel 2 tells us after that comes a time of iron mixed with clay where there was no single power dominating. And Daniel 7, for that same period, tells us this fourth beast will be superseded by ten horns, representing ten kings or kingdoms that will come out of this last empire. And then, from amongst the ten, another power will arise that will be different, and in its rising, three of those kingdoms will be destroyed. If you believe that these visions show the history of the Mediterranean world and the kingdoms that would dominate, there is only one conclusion based on history that can be concluded. That little horn is the church. Because the church had become like the kingdoms of the world. Now, there is a good deal more that needs to be said about this and some very interesting math we need to do. But we don't have time for that today. That will have to wait for next week. For today, I want to finish somewhere else, primarily with the words of Jesus and a message of warning for our day. Do you remember where we started today? In John 18, verse 36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. And this is what makes it also very difficult. For it seems conflict in this world is always driving us as the church to either cloister ourselves away into a worthless isolationism or completely form ourselves into the reality of the world, adopting the coercive forms of the world and rendering us just as dangerous as the kingdoms of the world. But Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Conflict. Conflict with each other, conflict with the world, what do we do about it? The Pharisees and the Sadducees found themselves in conflict with Jesus, didn't they? 
So what did they do in the name of keeping the faith pure? They used the coercive power of the state to see to it that Jesus was killed. They, in the name of religion, had become ferocious beasts just like the kingdoms of the world. And just like the kingdoms of the world, their kingdom passed away at the hands of the Roman legions who stormed Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and tore the temple to the ground, not leaving one stone upon another, just as Jesus said would happen. It is sometimes thought to be unkind and just not appropriate for our more enlightened times to assign negative biblical prophetic interpretations to entities that might still exist in our day. But if you think that's all I've done today, maybe you need to go back and listen to this again. What we have done today is look at Scripture and then look at history and try to draw the only conclusions that make sense. One of the things that Daniel 7 teaches us is that conflict, if not rightly handled, will turn any entity into a raging beast. Just like a kingdom of the world. Therefore, we who believe must always be forever vigilant to make certain we do not allow conflict to destroy us. And it is in this context that I would submit to you and to our fellow Seventh-day Adventist believers this caution. Just because Daniel 7 does not specifically describe us doesn't mean that the same things can't happen to us. Maybe we haven't become like that because we haven't had 500 years to do it yet. Do we really think we would have acted differently if we'd have been then? Whether or not the same things will happen to us will all come down to how we handle conflict and primarily how we handle conflict with each other. Remember some weeks ago when I spoke as a disturbed shepherd who feels he hears the distant sound of howling wolves? You remember that? If we do not handle ourselves properly with full knowledge that Jesus' kingdom is not the kingdom of the world, then we will become those wolves howling and devouring each other either in the name of biblical fidelity and the preservation of righteous practice or devouring in the name of careful and enlightened alignment with the spirit of the age. You've seen that, right? All of which at times leads me to almost despair. Wondering aloud before God, is it even possible, Lord? For have not your people always failed you from the beginning till now? What movement of God didn't fail him? To which my ears hear the voice of Jesus saying, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And I hear Jesus say again, 
My kingdom is not of this world. We must not flatter ourselves to think we would never be persecutors. For many a self-righteous believer has done great harm in the name of God. You remember where we started at the beginning? It was the very careful God believers who wouldn't even go into a Gentile's house lest they couldn't eat the Passover, who turned Jesus over to the Gentiles to be killed. And look at how Paul got started. Therefore, we as the church must fear to resort to the use of coercive external force even if the conflict we encounter is severe. And we can't just run to Ellen White for a ruling because in case you haven't noticed, she died about 100 years ago. And pretty much ever since, we've been arguing about whose side she'd be on if she were here today. For the record, she hated that role. When the church would argue and go to her and try to get a ruling, she usually said, figure it out for yourself. How much do you suppose she would hate to see us do this now? Daniel 2 tells us that every kingdom of the world will be smashed and destroyed by the stone cut without hands, the stone that represents Jesus. So it would be a real waste of time for us to spend time building another kingdom of the world, wouldn't it? There is only one kingdom worth building, and that is the kingdom not of this world, the kingdom that the Ancient of Days gives to the Son of Man, the kingdom that lasts forever and ever, the kingdom of Jesus. So we cannot allow ourselves to become consumed by the foolish conflicts of our day, even when they seem important. And we cannot allow ourselves to ever be split one from another, for we are a family in this house. Micah 6, verse 8 must remain our guide for living. He has shown thee, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of thee? But to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have revealed disturbing truths in your word. We'd like to think that because we call ourselves your people, we will always behave according to your purpose. But history does not bear that out. Lord, we don't call ourselves better than anyone. We just acknowledge that if we don't invest ourselves in building your kingdom, then everything we do is a waste. So Lord, for whatever it means in our day, 
show us how to build your kingdom, the kingdom that's not of this world, the kingdom that lasts forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.